This podcast is made possible by the generosity of listeners like you. Kindly consider a contribution through Patreon or PayPal. Links are in the details box. Patreon is a monthly subscription that you can cancel anytime. And PayPal is a one-time donation. Any amount is appreciated. And follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. The handle, The Beirut Banyan. And you can find us on our YouTube channel with the same name. And you can start watching the episodes as they're released. Thank you for listening. And thank you for watching. I'm Rani Shatah. And this is The Beirut Banyan. Muhammad, this episode should start this way. It's not easy to get a PhD. I have something which I really don't show people because I'm usually embarrassed. I have a GPD, a general postgraduate diploma. Now, there's a caveat here. I do have a master's degree, so I do have a master's of science. This is my failed attempt at a PhD. They gave me this just to take home and saying, good job, you finished one year of your PhD. We're going to give you a nice little... Dipl-. But, you know, it looks official. So I framed it. I hang it up. Why not? Yeah. And, you know, blurry, you know, if you're not great, if you're just like distant vision, you'd think it's a PhD. So I kind of put it up there. But I also have a, uh, a Kabebji Award, Customer of the Month, maybe 11 years ago. <laughs> So it's, it's also on the wall. It's next to it. So it's, it's at that level of, you know, I ordered just enough kebabji and I got a GPD. <laughs> kebabji is just a little higher as well. It's a little more important for me. But really, on a serious note, congratulations, because that is a very difficult uh, journey. And it's an accomplishment. And uh, I have a lot of respect for anyone that can sort of wrap up their, their PhD. And uh, the reason I'm starting this way is because it literally happened today you got your official award so that's uh it's an honor that you're even willing to talk to me at a time of what should be real celebration i'll thank coronavirus for letting you get stuck (laughs) with me instead of partying in dublin i guess you're in dublin now so yeah dublin is not known to be a sort of tame conservative quiet sort of town dublin knows how to party you should be partying. Instead, you're partying with me. The third thing, too kind. third thing is that I really enjoyed it. I said, you know, we should celebrate. You know, you should drink before the episode. And you showed me a photo of your cup of coffee. <laughs> and I'm like, that's really pathetic. Friday night, and I'm drinking my coffee too. So we're, we're here to talk about finance instead of all that is celebration. Um, yep. I don't know you. We've only exchanged maybe one or two messages on on Twitter. I've followed you for a while, and I've been following the Finance for Lebanon blog and the nerds sort of collective, if you will. And, you know, I didn't know what nerds stands for until I actually looked. It's nasty economy requires drastic solutions. I I think that's that's just perfect. So I'm not going to try to explain that one. I think it explains itself. It's self-explanatory, yeah. Absolutely. And uh, I mean, you're in a way fluent in the world of finance. Uh, you're young. You have some hope, I hope, 
you're not uh, jaded. I do. You do, and I, I kind of get that from Twitter. And this world to me is is rather new, where I can kind of gauge someone's mind without knowing them, and I kind of bet that their personalities are are pleasant from their tweets, and I can kind of pick out who's more obnoxious and who's more, you know, more engaging and who's more sort of uh, equally pleasant in in real life. So. Uh, before we get into finance, well, I, I hope so too. Yeah, I'll, I'll say <laughs> virtual virtual engagement is the first step to the real thing. Yeah. Before we get into finance, uh, I just want to celebrate also something else you've been doing, which I admire. This is very personal. You're growing your hair, Mabruk. It is growing and growing and growing, <laughs> and growing, <laughs> and growing and growing and growing. And, and, and it's and it's expected to grow for the next like two months because there won't be any uh, because thanks to the COVID nineteen. Barbers won't be open until July. <laughs> exactly. So you're pretty much on your way to becoming a uh, disheveled, thirties-ish, uh, uh, jaded guy like me, who just grew his hair out and didn't stop cutting it. And now you're gonna. Well, welcome to the club. It's the midlife I, crisis I before midlife. The, <laughs> I have been part of the club for a reasonable amount of time. For a yeah. good two, three years. Yeah. Oh man, that's nothing. <laughs> <laughs> we'll we'll do a follow up in ten years to see if you still have long yeah. hair. Probably not. And Muhammad, I I always apologize in advance. I'm sure you can hear this. That's been the sounds yep. of New York the last three months. So this is going to unfortunately unfortunately be part of the uh, the episode. Muhammad, uh, can you just sort of help me understand something very basic? Which and I I, I ask this from a, maybe a position of amateur knowledge on uh, anything that has to do with the IMF or perhaps the debate surrounding an IMF bailout. I know Lebanon's not special. Many countries are trying to get an IMF bailout. I think it's 90 countries at the moment are requesting yep. some assistance. Yeah, so in that sense, Lebanon is not special. There are many countries doing this. But the debate seems to be very special in that it's a very, very active debate online. And it's not so active, from my understanding, in the Lebanese parliament, in the Lebanese political body, whatever is left of it, that the debate is really among experts. And I know that you're very careful on Twitter. You say, I am not yeah. an expert, but I'm going to throw that label on you. Quote, unquote, Qu quote, unquote yeah. experts. That there is a fluid debate about what should be done and maybe the risks involved. And perhaps what the IMF should do is a precaution. So if you can just help me understand the basics of what is being asked by the state, what is being asked by the protest movement in the broadest sense, I know there's many sort of layers here, and what the IMF can actually do to help the protest movement reach its decent aim, which is having a functioning state that works and that treats its citizens with some dignity, and I just I know so low. the bar is so low, and I know it's kind of a loaded question, but if you can just help me understand what's really at stake in, in maybe all layers: the, the IMF, the Lebanese state, the regime, and the protest movement. Yeah, well, let's start off with one thing. I've never been a fan of the IMF mm -hmm. or most international financial institutions, for that matter. Mm -hmm. uh, I've always had issues with the sort of uh, apparent rigidity that they have with dealing with things. It's a very sort of balance sheet approach where it's all about the metrics, the metrics, the metrics. And it, it's it's a fairly sort of 
least from my perspective, a very superficial way of looking at it. Mm. But anyways, uh, we've reached this point, unfortunately, where we're not really spoiled for choice, neither when it comes to get, getting the, mon- the, the needed funds, because we desperately need foreign mm. currency. Right. Yeah. Nor when it comes to time. We don't really have a lot of time here. We can't just wait and procrastinating procrastinate not anymore mm. we've been procrastinating for decades over the real problems that we've that, that have been going on in the country mm-hmm. uh, and what can the IMF do well the IMF should be really conditioning any aid on actual quote-unquote the, the, this word is being used a lot structural reforms right but when we talk about structural reforms, at least in the Lebanese context, what are we talking about? We're not just talking about the, the, the problem is most of the narrative is focusing on financial reform, economic reform, which is great, that's very important, but what we really need is institutional reform. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. We're talking here about uh, reform at the legal level, the judiciary level, we're talking reform at the regulator level. We're talking about, so we're talking, be it financial regulator or other regulators, uh, we're talking about reforms at the very sort of institutional level in the Lebanese state. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because without that, then you have a massive risk that even, let's, let's say we do get into an IMF program and the IMF signs up to one that does not include or is not conditioned on certain institutional changes, uh, and very radical institutional changes, actually. If that is not the case, then what happens is that a couple of a couple of months down the line, uh, it fails. It fails miserably, simply because uh, the uh, whatever conditionalities are put by the IMF uh, in terms of financial reforms or whatnot are not actually implemented by the Lebanese states. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. Uh, yeah. Or that you know they implemented in a very sort of superficial way, trying to outsmart the IMF and the international community. Uh, so that is one thing, and and another thing is we all know that the conditions that will be set forth by the IMF, and even if you look at the actual economic program that the quote unquote economic program that the government has uh, proposed, uh, it it includes a couple of very painful measures. The end result of that is, you know, it's it's it is at the end of the day a an austerity program. Yeah, right. Uh, now, so you are expecting people to take up a lot of sacrifices and accept it, at, at while at the same time not doing any reforms at the very sort of institutional level that makes people feel that okay, we're going to have a state in a couple of years down the line. Huh. So, so I want to get this right, and I, I've had several conversations that that kind of hover around the issue of time and time constraints. And you said yes. it, you said it, you're very sort of clear about it, that there's just no more time, that you have to work with what's available, if I, if I got that right. That's true. Okay, so there's that pressure on getting things in a way organized and structured enough to, in a way, rescue Lebanon. So that's, that's yeah. the first initial point. Second point, and there's a, uh, again, I apologize for this. Uh, ah, that's fine. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, there's been, I think it was released this morning, a an online petition. Wow, that this this one's quite loud. Yeah. 
You know, I'm just going to add this. I, I really look forward to some return to normality in general. Uh, this yeah. morning I saw an article about monkeys stealing COVID-19 samples from a lab in India and running up a tree. Wow. And just This is like, this has become oh, a little too, no. too bizarre. Riots in Minneapolis last night, last yep. two or three nights, and, and all this happening. And yeah, I, I kind of, uh, I yearn for something a little more familiar, a little more. Um, but yeah, so there's time constraint. And then you have the, the, the uh, online petition. You have civil society. You have uh, well-respected names in, in economics and finance. Yeah. And, and political reform sort of enthusiasts all signing in saying that the IMF, if it is going to help, it has to help on certain terms, which you are hinting at, which is that it's not just finance or economics in Lebanon. It's political reform in its essence. Yeah. But then there's the other issue, which is it will take time for the protest movement to turn into something that's more familiar, at least when it comes to politics, where you can have them entering parliament if that's possible. If you have sort of an organized structure with some someone to talk to, it doesn't have to be a, a leader, so to speak, the way we understand it in Lebanon, but it could just be an org a, something that resembles a, a working relationship that the IMF could yeah. p potentially reach out to later. But that takes years. That's not something that will happen. Unfortunately, won't happen soon. So when you have that that situation, what is the best outcome? And I know you said it also that you're not a fan of the of the IMF kind of coming in and, and helping, probably for the for the right reasons. You don't want to see pain when where pain is unnecessary. But what what is the what is the recipe? Is it that the protest movement demands something that, in their opinion, is is far healthier, which is domestic accountability and focusing in on the regime and trying to get something to replace it? Or is it that the IMF should be more aware, should be more understanding of what's at stake? I mean, what what if you're a chef and you're trying to create that sort of uh, special meal for Lebanon, what does it include? Oh, that's a very tough one. Well, I apologize. I, I, <laughs> I know. No, no, not at all. Not at all. No, no, no. Uh, admittedly, yes. I mean, you're having this it's, it's a dilemma. On one hand, you're dealing with what literally, literally is a ticking time bomb, mm -hmm. a ticking economic, financial and social time bomb. Yeah. And we do not have the luxury to sort of talk about abstract ideas and, you know, very long term thing. We, we, we do need to focus on the long term, but we also need to focus on the immediate term. Uh, so and, and both are not mutually exclusive. They should go in parallel. So when we talk about political changes, uh, deep-rooted political change yes this is gonna take a lot of time hmm. uh, but the process has to be there we need to be working on that while at the same time looking at the more immediate things the more I mean as I said it is uh, a ticking time bomb that we need to deal with yeah uh, and and it's th these are these two lines have to go in parallel uh, so the kind of recipe that I would be looking for very broadly speaking is one that would, I would say, because it's going to be an inevitably painful recipe, mm -hmm. you need to start off the whole thing with measures that are deemed popular, measures that are, that are actual deep reforms and tangible reforms that people can say, oh, okay, this is quite mm. a bit of an improvement. Mm. This is, we're seeing progress here. You need to start off with that. And, and, sorry, that's beyond the IMF scope. That's more Lebanon, or is that 
well, included? It, 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 it could go both ways. Uh -huh. Because things like, for example, uh, uh, we, we're having this issue with uh, tenders, for example. Mm -hmm. yes. every, every contract, every tender, the, the whole process is an absolute mess. Yeah. Uh, so if, if, you, if, you, if you front load everything or start any sort of IMF program with such reforms at that level or anti-corruption measures, uh, so uh, and or construction. Mm -hmm, yeah. Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. if if you start off with such sort of institutional changes that are tangible, that are deeply rooted, that people have been demanding for ages, uh, then you know it it would give people a glimmer of hope that okay, we are going on track. But mm. if you start off the program with painful austerity measures, right, yeah, right, that, then. People are not going to take it. They're going to like, okay, why are we expected to why are we expected to sacrifice if we are not seeing tangible changes at the institutional and political level? Do you see the regime in its negotiations? And I know it's still sort of it's an ongoing process, but do you see that they are yeah. seeing it this way? That they're trying to get something that helps the average citizen first, and then sort of deal with the sort of the. Uh, the core problems later or or do you see them as sort of aloof to that kind of reality yeah i think the focus has been primarily on the pure financial and technical mm. aspect you know the, right. uh, one of the main problems in the discourse about the lebanese financial and economic situation is that uh, and this is something that i am guilty of myself you know at times we have to a large extent whether intentionally or not reduced the problem to some kind of excel spreadsheet exercise <laughs> this is not an excel spreadsheet exercise this is way beyond an excel spreadsheet exercise you know you are telling people that and this is inevitable regardless of whatever measures are going to happen that w people are going to lose a major chunk of their income yes a major chunk of their purchasing power that has actually happened the fact that the leader has devalued sure. and it's right now yeah. priced at like over 4,000 lira to the dollar, yeah. and that's that's unfortunately irreversible for the foreseeable future. Yeah, yeah. this the, this this is this is a reflection of the reality that people's real incomes have dropped considerably. Yeah, so you're you're you cannot expect people to take that up without showing them that sort of glimmer of hope that there are actual measures that are going to be taken. So can I ask you then, as you, you gave the example of tender and that being sort of a, a, a popular yeah, sort of issue. Yeah. But can you, what is the kind of hope that you would like to see in that negotiation process so that the austerity that is eventual, that, that is there, uh, will not sort of create more social unrest and, and more sort that's, of, yeah. That, that's, that's exactly my problem, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. uh, they're starting off with austerity, at least when, when you read the document, when you read their economic rescue plan. Uh, first of all, who is it directed at? When you read it, it's directed at the creditors. Mm, mm, yeah? Mm. The, the language of the report is it's directed at current creditors, who you're going to ask them to restructure, and future creditors, i.e. the IMF or any other donor countries. Very right. little, when you read it, very little is directed towards yeah, the Lebanese people. Who would be expected? Who are being expected to take up these, to take to to accept certain sacrifices and certain pain? Okay, so this, so the target is the target is incorrect. That it's 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 I mean, not an incorrect target. No, no, no. Okay, it is a, uh, but there but but they're still missing 
so the real target should be the 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 main target should be the average Lebanese citizen. Yeah. Okay. Any, mm-hmm. Yeah, but let, yeah. let's okay. So I let's say that's the correct. Let, let's say that's the correct approach. What what is it that the IMF is doing that is not lining up to that expectation? Is it that they're treating Lebanon as an Excel sheet? That it's sort of just one of many countries that we have to work with, and these are sort of numbers that are suitable, and therefore we can work with that. Or is it something that's it just uh, there's a reluctancy to get sort of involved in helping Lebanon implement its own laws? I'm trying I'm trying to get maybe the psychology of it. That w- what is it that sort of not wh- why is it not lining up the way that you're you're describing? Well, it's not lining up the way I'm describing. Because, well, one, one part is the IMF. Yeah, sure. You know, the, the general, uh, the IMF tends to have, that's not always the case. And the mm-hmm. IMF has uh, progressed a lot over the years. But it still has this tendency to, they have this, they're, they're still largely a one-trick pony, essentially. <laughs> it's always the usual recipe followed. Not always, but almost always the usual recipe that's being followed, irrespective of the country. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, but there's a lot of, much of the onus is actually on the countries that are requesting an IMF program. So, right, you know, right. if you have a credible negotiating team, yes, uh, then it makes all the difference. And one classic example that comes into my mind is Iceland. Mm. Iceland went through a financial meltdown that probably the largest financial meltdown in Europe t- in 2008, 2009. Yes. And they did sign up for an IMF program. Right. But it was a 100% homemade program. That's one thing. And and it was not your classical sort of IMF-ish kind of program. It wasn't just the front-loaded austerity program. So the negotiations team is really the issue here when it comes to... It, and the negotiation, the negotiating team makes all the difference. Yeah. I, I actually, so I'm not really fluent <clears throat> in the world of finance to begin with. I'm kind of trying to catch up and sort of learn yeah. from from people like you. Uh, is, is the negotiation team in Lebanon, in your opinion, your assessment, does it include the voices that should be there, sort of on on behalf of Lebanon and Lebanese people, or is Lebanon missing it right now that they don't have the people that that you would like to see. Yeah, truth be told, the negotiating team does include quite a few high caliber people. Mm-hmm. That's, I'll be very honest here. Uh, and and quite a few well-intended people. Mm-hmm. But is it really them who's calling the shots? Okay, so that's actually, that's the perfect segue into what I wanted to ask you secondly, which is, is it is it really their control at the end of the day that they can, because you're, I mean, Iceland, one assumes, I, I could be wrong here, but one assumes that the negotiation, the negotiations team does have some leeway when it comes to the sort of second part of the story, which is implementation. Lebanon, you always have well-intentioned people that do their best and then kind of, that's just like another plan that gets dismissed yeah. over time. So if that's the case in Lebanon, the real power, I'm, I'm assuming here you're referring to the, the regime, that they're the ones exactly. that... Okay, so in the Lebanese context, what could the negotiations team do in that sense to kind of, in a way, navigate both the IMF and the Lebanese regime? One, one I could assume that the Lebanese regime is harder to maneuver than the IMF in that kind of three-way struggle. Yeah. 
it's I, I, I don't envy the Lebanese negotiating team because they're dealing with this sort of, you know, it is, they are stuck between those, on one hand, what is the right thing to do when it comes to negotiations with the IMF, but they might say agree on the right measures or what I believe are the right measures mm. with mm. the IMF, but, you know, but then they come across a stumbling block with the actual people calling the shots, which is the regime, essentially. Right. So... So what can they do? I don't really know. I, hence why I really don't envy them because <laughs> th this is a very deeply entrenched regime yeah. that has been there for decades. And they're not going to give up that easily. They're not going to give up that easily. Okay. So, yeah. Yeah. It's, 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 it's a very tough one. It's a very, very tough one simply because... I don't think any one of us has the answer to that. What can the negotiating team do? I don't think the negotiating team can do much when it comes to navigating this very complicated dynamic. Uh, there isn't much to do. Okay, so uh, I'm going to ask you, this is a sort of, a, from a, from the, somebody yeah. who only finished one year of a PhD program, okay? Not, I don't have the, yeah, yeah, yeah. the extra three years necessary to get sort of too deep. I, I With my master's degree, I kind of picked up on game theory. And I just want to ask you, what is that option where the three, and I know they're not all on the same level here, but the IMF, well-intentioned negotiations team, negotiating team, that I'll also throw in there, the civil society voices, the quote-unquote experts online, and, and everyone with everyone trying to do the right thing, and then of course the Lebanese regime. And that sort of, in that paradigm, what is the option that in a way I don't want to say preserves all three's interests because they don't line up, but does not let the regime sort of persevere in that there's no political reform, there's no uh, structural reform, there's no accountability, there's no transparency. You don't want to see that. You want to see also the protest movement able to sort of influence the debate in Lebanon, and you want to see the IMF paying attention to what's at stake and that the politics are as important if not more important so is is there a is there something there that you could see a scenario where there is a way forward or or is there an inevitable conclusion here that maybe at the end of the day if there is an agreement it it may preserve the regime and if there's no agreement we may see the implosion of lebanon Mabruk again for your PhD. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that is tougher than my PhD. <laughs> well, that, <laughs> no, is, what do they tougher. call this? This is a postdoc exercise. This is a, you know, yeah. <laughs> without, without the money. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Unpaid yeah. postdoc. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, let, if, if we look at anecdotes, you know, previous cases where there was an IMF, one, there was an IMF program, uh, one anecdote that really strikes me is Jamaica. Jamaica went into an IMF program mm. a couple of years ago, uh, and the very unique. Now, it, it wasn't the the actual particulars of the program was not one that I was very excited about. It was it was too harsh. But re regardless of the program itself, one very sort of interesting thing about that program is that uh, there was actually local watchdog groups in Jamaica from civil society, mm, making mm. sure 
keeping keeping the government on its toes, making sure that it's actually implementing. There was this local ownership and local buy-in of the program, and uh, and 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 that that largely informed or influenced uh, the government decision making. So you had these you had civil society actually organizing and creating these watchdog groups in in uh, when it comes to the IMF program. Uh, so there was this local buy-in and uh, and uh, local involvement actually in making sure that the Jamaican government is actually doing it, is actually implementing it. So, so that's that's why you you'd want to see that replicated in Lebanon more more involvement, more oversight. Yes. Yeah. The problem is that uh, in the in Lebanon's so the, in Lebanon's case, one issue, at least on the face of it, I do stand corrected. On the face of it, there wasn't much engagement between the government and other stakeholders in the drafting of the economic program. Because mm-hmm. right. this is the program that went to the that, that they're pitching to the IMF essentially. Right. In in Jamaica's case, there was actually public engagement. There was stakeholder engagement when it comes to what program. Can we implement in Lebanon's case up until now there there isn't much at least overt engagement not engagement that we could see or notice so uh, and that was a non-starter starting off with a program that is not based on obvious public engagement is a non-starter uh, so what 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 I would have hoped for is mm. that there was public engagement with civil society with industry groups with uh, with uh, uh, trade unions, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, when it comes to okay, what kind of program do we want? And so the, then so, sorry, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Mm-hmm. And then you use that as a basis, because then you know you you got that local buy-in, yeah, in one way or the other, and that's a prerequisite. I mean, one of the biggest risks of an IMF program is and is the implementation risk that the government doesn't implement a program, and the less local buy-in to that program, the less likely the government, any government is going to implement it. So, so in, a way you're, in, in a way there's an expectation here that the regime will behave more responsibly. Yes. Well, what I was hoping for, unfortunately, naively, when, since, since the uh, uh, revolution started, uh, in the aftermath of the revolution, is that, okay, even if the revolution did not managed to overthrow the regime right now it would have at least managed to keep them on their toes that they basically that the regime started feeling the heat and saying okay you know if we mess up it's going to be really bad for us not because the regime is great but because they're actually feeling the heat because they're worried about themselves and and them doing the right thing might stem from that so so you're in a way and i I don't want to speak on your behalf here i'm just going to try to extrapolate that you're you're disappointed that the regime did not fall and you're also disappointed that they're not being kept to their toes if that regime were to stay longer than anticipated so it's a double disappointment and then within that you have the necessity for reform regardless of who's running the country you still need that kind of assistance so this is in a way the worst case scenario for <laughs> for Lebanon because I, I I can't imagine it sort of this is the re- regime preserving itself and then of course you add to that the pandemic covid and all that kind of all the consequences of that on on the economy and on the protest movement that and it it inevitably looks like the genuine desires of the protest movement which 
in many ways resembles just wanting basic services doesn't really yeah. it's not like a, this is not a magic solution here it's just treat us like we're worth something at the end of the day which is a very very important statement when it comes to Lebanon you have those aspirations being curtailed and you have the regime negotiating with the IMF and the IMF is sort of doing what it does it doesn't really have special favors for Lebanon in particular it's it's almost like um, it looks increasingly that the protest movement unfortunately it will take more time and things may get worse in the short term before we see positive change and I I don't know if that that resonates oh it definitely resonates okay it is a double disappointment yeah Uh, it, and and what makes things worse is that it seems like the regime has actually become even more shameless. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> like you you would think that okay they would backtrack on some things that so, so something as simple as uh, Salata this uh, mm, fight yeah. over uh, uh, Salata. M- uh, many stakeholders have already said that Lebanon does not need three power plants. Yeah. Right. Does yeah. yeah. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and yet they're sticking to this one thing, which is Salata, which 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 is really obviously really just uh, a political game here. You know, Salata is not really for technical reasons; it's mm-hmm. for purely political reasons that we know. Mm-hmm. Uh, you you would imagine that you know the political class would be, uh, let's say, less shameless when it comes to these measures. When it comes to these things, or let's say when it comes to recruitment, uh, recruitment of civil servants today. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Today, news was out that you know they're gonna recruit a a what was it? It was a uh, f- for the director of the Ministry of Economy. Oh, I didn't uh, see this. What was the? Yeah. Uh, so, so there was there it, 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 now whether or not it's true is a different story. But a physiotherapist mm. was mm. is one of the political party's candidates for Minister of Economy. And you're like, okay, that's not adding up. It's like, why would, why would you get a physiotherapist for minister for, for director of the Ministry of Economy? And one assumes it, it it's not it's also not a great physiotherapist, probably mediocre, right? So it's even like <laughs> yeah. even what yeah, yeah. No, but okay, so that's that's the reality we both grew up with. We know that. We know the we know mediocrity, we know corruption, we know that kind of lethargic way of dealing with issues. But and I naively betted, though, I naively betted that this shock to the regime, which is the revolution, would have prompted them to behave to behave a bit better. Mm. Not because not because the regime is great, not because they're fundamentally good people, but they're actually worried for themselves after seeing what people can do on the streets. Take from that a, an assumption here that is it that they're not afraid, that they're betting they on. They don't seem to be. Hmm. They're even more emboldened. Yeah. And I don't necessarily mean afraid for their... I mean, I mean it more like they want to stay in power, therefore they would need to adjust to the circumstances. And they're not adjusting. They're kind of sticking to their... business as usual, business as usual, literally business as usual. Okay, so let's let's go with that. Let's go with the assumption that that's their policy and that's their existential policy. That this is the biggest shock I think the post-war order will have in our lifetime and I don't see that kind of easily replicated anytime soon maybe we'll live long enough to see something I don't know maybe it'll happen sooner than later everything is fluid who knows Uh, but 
I'll, I'll just assume that this was a shock for everyone, including the protesters and the regime and everyone was really elated by the moment or, or they were afraid for different reasons. And uh, all that seven months ago and today, it's uh, safety, comfort, knowing that the IMF is eventually going to feel obligated to help and we can ride this out. Because that's a very, very tragic end to the October moment and, and all that we saw after that. It's a very yeah. sad ending. Yeah, it's, it's a very tragic ending, which I hope doesn't really materialize. Mm. Uh, what I'm still hoping for is more public engagement in what kind of policies we want. Mm. So, mm. you know, s something within the lines of uh, this uh, open letter which was sent to the IMF uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. T uh, today, There's something mm. within those lines, you know, uh, the petition. Yeah. Uh, so, not only just saying, oh, the, uh, uh, not only making broad policy statements, but actually making specific policy statements saying, this is what we want. One, two, three, four, yeah. five. Very yeah. specific, very clear, very targeted, and very measured. Yeah. Uh, and this is what we really need here. You know, uh, more public engagement in what we really want yeah. from such a program if it ever materializes. You know, I'm glad you, you point that out because even in the, in the list of signatories, there are former ministers on there. There are former uh, central bank vice governors. I mean, yep. there's there are names that are not just civil society per se. You have old components or, or some of the more recent components of the regime yep. that are also saying, you know, this is uh, something worth worth reading, worth listening to. Yeah. So that, in a way, it's almost like an attempt at a... I'm not going to be too romantic here, but it is, in a sense, it's a parallel regime. It's a, it's a, it's a regime that's mostly online. It's a regime that is very active and very passionate. And it, sometimes it's on the streets, sometimes it's not. And I guess it's also telling that even if demands are not met on the streets, they're being vocalized in other places. So you don't necessarily need to be on the street to express your concern. I mean, you're in Dublin, I'm in New York, and we're talking about yeah. the same thing. So it's almost like uh, this is the best we can do given the circumstances. Try to persuade the IMF to think twice. And trying to keep the regime to account as much as, as possible. As much as possible. Yeah. Right. The I, not only the IMF, the IMF and other international stakeholders here. You know, mm -hmm. We're talking about potential donor countries, we're talking about other international financial institutions, the World Bank, etc., etc. So there are many international stakeholders that are at play here. Uh, and we should, we should be having this... Yes, you rightfully said a parallel regime or a shadow regime. Right, that, yeah. Yeah. That, that, that actively lobbies for doing the right things. Yeah. So, okay, we know that we have a regime that is far from being ideal, mm. but regardless of what the regime is, what are the right measures that should be done? We should be talking about that. What, what are the right policy, what is the right policy mix that we need? I have to admit, and yeah, I, sorry, sorry, please go ahead. Yeah, no, 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 go ahead, yeah. No, I, I mean, I from from my standpoint, just sort of reading and, and watching people that are so passionately engaged, I mean, there's so much talent and so much profession, so much skill that it's just such a... And then you see the ruling regime and it's such an the embarrassment. Of it. Yeah, and it stands out. It really, it's not like it's a distant planet, you know, sophistication versus just sloppiness and... and uh, 
uh, almost like a unwillingness to 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 budge. It's it's literally what it is, yeah. So, but you gave, I like the examples you gave. So Iceland is sort of the the, I mean, of course, Lebanon is not Iceland, and that's that's <laughs> yeah. clear for many reasons. But that you have a strong negotiation negotiating team, and then you have uh, an Icelandic regime that's interested as well in what the negotiating team is doing, yeah. and they're also not trying to desperately survive their own individual stake in Iceland. It's a very different setup. Jamaican, yeah, different dynamic. I think you get this on night and day, but yeah. but it's a way that you see it's appropriate. Jamaica as well, because of that civil society oversight. Yep. Are there other examples where you have that kind of, and I'll use the term loosely, accountability, where you have uh, a regime that's held to account to some degree, and the IMF negotiated, and the country is in a better place today. And I've had conversations about Argentina, about Venezuela. I've touched on Greece a bit, and those are sort of more familiar stories. But is, yeah. I had not heard of Jamaica before, which I liked. And Iceland is not brought up that much, at least when it comes to the Lebanese example. Are, are there other yeah. examples that you kind of lean on as a way? Uh, nope. No. Not really. Not really. <laughs> okay. sim- simply, be- simply because uh, most most IMF programs were ones that I would deem as a failure. What are the failures to you? So to there you are then? very, if, from my perspective. Yeah, of course, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, uh, so uh, it, it was only those two pro, uh, two two cases here where you know I was like, I'm like, yeah, we can we can take some lessons from from Iceland, in terms of the actual sort of uh, uh, strength of a negotiating team, a credible regime that came up with a, a credible economic program. A homegrown economic program that got buy-in from the IMF, despite the fact that this program did not conform, did not largely conform to the usual orthodoxies that the IMF usually follows. So, if, uh, other uh, than other than those two examples, would would the other examples to you more or less be considered inappropriate or or just not? I don't want to say failure because I don't know if that's the right word either. But yeah, that, I would say. Yeah. I mean, is it just those two examples, and then the rest are not ideal? Most, I mean, most of the rest are not ones that I would consider appropriate. Hmm. Yeah, the overwhelming majority. Okay, let me then like the mental gymnastics here. There's no IMF bailout. Yeah. What would you see as the best situation for Lebanon if there's no if there's... no IMF bailout? The IMF is not interested. The IMF turns its back. There's no external funding. There's no country coming to the rescue. Said money is is locked for good. Yeah. What would you expect then for for Lebanon, at least moving forward? What would you want the sort of optimal situation? The optimal situation, given those uh, constraints that you have uh, said, would be a an even stronger uprising. That's what I assumed. I kind of got that from your conversation. So. What does that translate to in the Lebanese context? Not in the Berlin 1989 situation, not in this sort of like velvet revolution in Prague or these kind of classic examples of Eastern yeah. Europe, or, or for that matter, not necessarily the, the disappointments of the Arab Spring in the last decade. When it comes to Lebanon in particular, what does that translate to you? Unfortunately, it would translate to... Uh, uh, an uprising that is not, quote-unquote, pretty. 
I want you to take me a, a step further, as as as, as, as actually as many steps as you can further on that path. Yeah. Does that does that? I mean, I don't want to speak on your behalf. That's why I'm kind of yeah. I'm trying to get it from you. Is it, does it mean storming the gates? Does it mean getting certain institutions to? Is it is it o- overtaking the regime? It's yes. It's literally what would be described in Arabic as thawrajia. Okay. So that's really because, what, what we've what we've not seen. Right, right. Because hunger is knocking on the country's doors. Hmm. Let's not fool ourselves into believing otherwise. Hunger is knocking on Lebanon's doors. Uh, and and the more we procrastinate, the more tragic it's going to be. And it could go either ways. That's that's what I'm worried about. So let's it could go either ways. It could go either to the, in the direction of a complete uh, and very vicious uh, uprising, mm-hmm. or you could go to a situation where this corrupt rentier setup that Lebanon inherently is is even strengthened further. Right. Where you know w- people are so desperate that they would start taking, uh, God, God forbid, I mean, people start taking rations from political parties, and political parties use that desperation to further strengthen their position in Lebanon. So it's it's you've got two extremes here, yeah. either a complete overthrow of the regime, or a complete submission to the regime. It could go either ways. Let's go with the former, overthrow, in the Lebanese context. Not, I mean, I'm, I'm trying to narrow it, narrowing it yeah. into Lebanon, and the Lebanon we know, and the experiences we've seen and and dealt with, and the disappointments we've also experienced. What, what does it look like to you? Is it, is it each community reigns in its own leadership? Is it everyone seeing eye to eye for the first time, maybe, in, in modern Lebanese history? I mean, there's that kind of... I always, and I say this as somebody who wholeheartedly supports any reform in Lebanon. So there's that. But is how does it translate, at least when it comes to the Lebanese experience? I don't know. I can't imagine it, and that's why I kind of I want to be optimistic that if that if that if it's those two options, you don't want to see the latter. You want to yeah. see a new Lebanon that that works. So how, how does that how does that work to you? Oh. Dissertation as number I said, two. It's, it, <laughs> <laughs> as I as I said, it it at at least in the short to medium term, it wouldn't be pretty at all. Mm. It would be violent it would be violent i cannot see it taking any other form simply because once hunger strikes and if we and if we assume that uh, people submitting is not an option then you know you you would see basically angry mobs with uh, torches and pitchforks if not worse these are very bleak uh, scenarios and I, these, are, these are very bleak scenarios, yeah. and, and and what makes it even more bleak is that uh, the political class will not give in to that. Let's not forget the, the, right. these are the, these are warlords. Yeah, the overwhelming majority of them are warlords, if not all of them. Uh, they won't give in. This is this is th- in fact this might be their comfort zone to a large extent. Meaning this instability, low-level instability. Yes, this might be their comfort zone. Mm, it, mm. Because I mean, th- th- these are guys who have been doing this, who 
who have done this for 15 years. Oh, if not longer. I mean, going yeah. back... Even... I mean, so 15 years, I'm saying, like, from 1975 to 1990. Oh, oh, right, right. Okay, yeah. So you're, those are the... Yeah, so, you're, so, you know, all this talk about emerging from the Civil War and overcoming the Civil War and three decades on trying to turn the page, and yet it's the same... Not entirely, it's not entirely, but for the most part, the 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 core institutions, so to speak, are still mismanaged by militia-like figures. Again, not yeah. entirely, but, but for the most part. And I I don't know, and I, I say this as somebody, again, who supports this protest movement in general, I don't know what that kind of victory looks like for Lebanon. I just don't know. I can't I can't see it. And I want to see something that looks good down the road, but it doesn't doesn't it doesn't materialize. And I guess it's because I still see that lethargic way of power sharing as a lot stronger yeah. and a lot more entrenched than than we appreciate. And it's so old and so it's so deeply embedded into the psyche that it's just very difficult to see any alternative at least when it comes to Lebanon. Even if the alternative is more suitable, even if it's something that has never been tested and should be tested, it's difficult. I try to break free and see a, a civil state that treats its citizens fairly, that accommodates, accommodates the sectarian tendencies we know, whether it's through a Senate or something symbolic. It doesn't have to be anything that sophisticated either. It just puts it in its place and lets the state function the way any state should function, that that basic, basic sort of uh, stage to me is still alien. And that's maybe that, maybe that speaks to how, how difficult things are in Lebanon, that even that yeah. lowest expectation is not, is not visible. Yeah, unfortunately, unfortunately, this is a view that I share. Mm. Would, that, you, you, know, what, would yeah. you take from that any burden on the, on, the worst aspects of the civil war still existing in Lebanese society, meaning meaning that there is still a militia that is part of the Lebanese state that has more or less its its autonomy. So I mean, maybe that's even an understatement, but it can function on its own terms for the most part. And you have other militia-like figures that are still kind of representing the state. Does it does it go back to that? That that's sort of the thing that Lebanon did not overcome. From 1975? Definitely because we didn't have a true sort of free con national reconciliation exercise. Mm -hmm. It was a, a deal between those very same warlords who got us into this mess on how to sort of uh, split this pie called Lebanon between them. So we never really had a national reconciliation at the grassroots level. Yeah. Yeah, it never happened. It actually, what, what really happens from my from my point of view is, it, it's just a ceasefire between those very same warlords. Mm. It's just yeah. a ceasefire. And how to sort of maintain a, cur a, a certain status quo that suits them. And that the non-warlords that emerge were either tolerated by these militia-like figures or eliminated when they overstepped. I guess yeah. that's the sad story of post-war Lebanon. That is, yeah. It's, uh, I mean, you know, if, if you have credible and strong figures who are non-warlord figures, 
who do not conform to the status quo, uh, I mean, the, the, when such a person emerges, that this whole political dynamic, this group of warlords, who, who on the face of it are, are you know, they're, they're always politically bicker with each other. They always fight with each other. They would all unite against that. Yeah, right. They would all unite because at the end of the day, they're fighting over their share of the pie. Sure, they bicker over their share of the pie, but as a collective, yes, as a collective, they would, they would fight hand in hand, quote unquote, fight hand hand in hand to maintain that status quo. All of them have a have an interest in maintaining that status quo and all of them would whether directly or not cooperate with each other to ensure that the status quo remains and they are doing that Hamad I, uh, I just want to wrap it up by asking you a personal question that is not really linked to finance or to COVID or to sort of anything that we're living through right now yeah. what are you doing in Dublin? what am I doing in Dublin? yeah <laughs> <laughs> it's such a random place to move to, yeah. As somebody with a lot of Lebanese friends around the world, I don't know anyone in Dublin. I know I have a friend in Belfast. I did an episode with him, Drew Mkhayed. You, you might know him. He's yeah. A, yeah, so he's in Belfast in Northern Ireland. You're the only Lebanese friend I have in Dublin. What are you doing there? <laughs> <laughs> random choice, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, you know, these these things happen, you know, unexpectedly, you know, it was a random choice for, for me too. Mm -hmm. So you did, you was, did was it just your PhD that you did in Dublin and then uh, everything else yeah. was back in Lebanon? No, I, I've never lived in Lebanon. So you never I, lived? I've, I, I've lived abroad my whole life. Okay. Kuwait, UK and Ireland. I've, okay. I've, I've lived my whole life abroad. I so, see, uh, I see. So, but did, so, was Ireland, uh, is anything about Ireland that took you there as opposed to, I don't know, no, the more it familiar? Was, it was a, yeah, it was a purely pragmatic decision hmm. that, you know, it was a purely practical decision that, oh, these guys actually gave me a scholarship, so I'm going to go. Right. It was as simple as that. And w when I arrived here, you know, I actually liked it mm -hmm. and I'm, I'm, I'm relatively settled here. I, I envy you. I, I, I visited Ireland. I visited Dublin about 20 years ago, and I really thought about back then, why didn't I study in Dublin? And I think it was something to do with the book culture, that books are taken seriously in these bookshops and, and a lot of cafes with a lot of literature and a lot of... It's, it's, it's a friendly way of approaching academia. It wasn't sort of remote and detached. I considered Trinity College at some point and then kind of just forgot about it. But I have fond memories of Dublin. And uh, I, I hope to visit again one day. And uh, once travel travel restrictions are lifted, it would be yeah. a good good sort of retreat from from all that we've been witnessing. I I remember it as being just a very pleasant part of the world. So, I'll uh, I'll say congratulations again for finishing your PhD. And uh, I appreciate you spending your evening post award with me. <laughs> You have many choices. You have many people to turn to. You have a You're lot being of being too kind. Ah, you have better things to do. I'm sure you. You and you. You also did something which is quite nice. You gave me an additional thirty minutes of your time, so I appreciate that. So, <laughs> no worries at all. Hamad, thank you for your time. Thank you. Thanks for listening, and a friendly reminder to help support this podcast by contributing through Patreon or PayPal. 
All links are in the details box below. Until next time, I'm Rani Shatah, and this is the Beirut Banyan.